Going to the public library was the first thing I ever did by myself as a kid. My parents would allow me to walk the few blocks from our home to the library, and I felt a growing sense of independence with each step. There was something liberating about being able to make my own decisions about which books to pick from the endless rows of shelves. In her childhood, UNT history professor Catherine Beebe also felt a sense of personal freedom among books. I come from a family of book nerds, and uh, we used to go, my parents were wonderful. Um, they would, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they were both public school teachers. And, um, but they would always every week take us to the library. And there was never any restriction placed on what we could read. We could read anything. And um, if it was sensitive or something concerning, um, my parents were always open that my sister and I could talk to them about whatever we were reading. And I think the best thing they did was uh, allow us to bring a laundry basket to the library and my sister and I, and of course they had their books, we could all fill up the laundry basket and uh, take it home. So there was never any restrictions on limits, uh, numbers of books or what types of books. And I think um, coming from a reading family like that really helped uh, foster my own love of reading, of course. On this episode of UNC Pod, join me, Heather Knoll, as we explore the origins of children's literature, understand the role books can play in meaningful conversations with our kids, and look at the efforts to bring more diversity and inclusion to the genre. We'll also learn about some members of our own UNC community who have been inspired to write for a youth audience. Author Stephen King once said that books are uniquely portable magic. In flipping the pages of a book, you can be transported anywhere and introduced to people and cultures you've never experienced before. For kids, the content in books can be especially impactful, encouraging a sense of wonder and curiosity, as well as nurturing their development and understanding. Dr. Beebe, who studies the medieval period and the history of the book, says the first known children's books date back to the 18th century when Swiss-born philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau introduced the idea of childhood as a state of development. We often associate children's literature with euphoric fairy tales and easy to read picture books, but some of the original works directed at children were very different. The idea of books specifically for children came in with the idea of childhood as a specific state. Um, in the, maybe the 18th century, uh, Rousseau talks about children as being different. Um, and the early 19th century. And so you start getting books that are marketed specifically for children. But I think people have been telling stories to kids for a long time. And in the medieval manuscripts I study, uh, I study one particular Dominican friar who goes on pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1480 and 1483. And he kind of writes about it in four different ways. And one of the ways is in his German uh, language that he knows the knights who paid for his trip would um, know instead of the Latin that he would write for his more learned brethren. And in the German version, he says, I'm going to include jokes and little silly things and amongst this whole high holy discussion of like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and all the holy places in the Holy Land. He says, because I know that you will read this aloud to your kitchen boys and to your maids and to the uh, people in your household. So he's specifically thinking of children there. 
And he says, so I can tell you entertaining things. And by being entertained, then maybe they'll pay attention more, kind of like a, a professor in class who tries to drop some jokes in during lecture. Who <laughs> Sometimes they fail, sometimes they don't. But I think uh, his name is Felix Fabry. And I think his example shows that people have been aware that maybe you want to be entertaining for children um, while slipping in the things that you want to teach them. And so I think the earliest formal picture books or children's books um, in the 19th century also did this. And, but they were, compared to today's children's literature, very didactic. One of the earliest picture books that people talk about is one called Struvel Peter um, uh, in German. And today it's kind of horrifying. You have this, a boy with scissors for hands, very much a kind of a precursor of Edward Scissorhands. And terrible things are always happening to Struvel Peter and um, kind of later German children's literature maximates. Or if you think of the earliest grim fairy tales, they are grim. <laughs> and, um, and so the, this didacticism, this idea that we're gonna teach children by uh, perhaps through scary stories uh, to learn the social norms of the time is something I think that is still important today, but perhaps today we've got more emphasis on the fun uh, learning aspect of it. Our UNC Special Collections has hundreds of children's books in the Justine Corson Weaver Collection. Mrs. Weaver was an author and collector of children's literature. Among the books in the collection are Frances Hodgson Burnett's The Secret Garden, an unprecedented number of English translations of Joanna Spiri's Heidi, as well as early children's grammar and educational books. And they also have um, a huge collection of tiny miniature books, some of which are children's uh, focused and some of which are just artist books. And um, with those, you see wonderful things like Marie Sendak's Nutshell Library and this idea um, that I think, you know, you see kids responding to today, something small, just their size. And I think children, uh, no matter when they're uh, living, no matter what era, um, might be looking for things to connect with them and their world. And these tiny little books that you can see in the UNT Special Collections do. So you've talked about how children's books got started, but how has the genre evolved over the years? If you look at um, kind of the more recent evolution of children's books, I think in the past hundred years, definitely, but certainly in the past 60, I think you'll see that there is um, a lot more emphasis now in representing everyone. And I know we'll talk a bit about this later, but an idea that uh, I think children's books reflect the dominant values and ideology of the time. And so, uh, they're actually a really good litmus test of what people want their children to know or feel or think at any given time. And so I think as our society has changed, even in the past 50 to 60 years, um, you can see children's books evolving there. So today there are much uh, more books uh, about uh, children of color than there were. There aren't enough. Um, but you'll see that you know, the characters are not always um, of kind of uh, dominant powers in society. Um, also, I think you, you see people reassessing books of the past. So for instance, uh, in Richard Scarry's Busy Town books, um, it's, uh, he uses animal characters to um, 
populate his cityscapes and, and all sorts of interesting things going on in corners and shops. And um, it's very busy. And in one of them, uh, the firefighters are coming and rescuing a cat who is um, shouting out of a window with flames behind her. In the earliest versions of this, um, the cat is labeled beautiful screaming lady. And um, the firefighters are all male. And in the most uh, recent edition, um, they have left the illustrations the same. Uh, and yet the beautiful screaming lady is uh, now just a cat asking for help or something like this. And um, the firefighters have been gendered. And so not all of them are male, I think. But in some ways, uh, you could have issues with that as well. Putting a bow on a firefighter's helmet doesn't necessarily mean you're being inclusive. Um, but I think you see that type of evolution in um, the way children's books are read and created now, especially through um, organizations like We Need Diverse Books, which is a grassroots organization that advocates changes in the publishing industry. And they have been really instrumental in pointing out um, kind of the disparities of representation in uh, current children's literature and really working to um, see changes in the publishing industry that will help uh, remove those disparities. So you mentioned Richard Scarry. There was another children's book author uh, that's made headlines this year. Dr. Seuss Enterprises announced it would stop printing six books uh, because they contain racist and insensitive imagery. Why do you feel it's important that we are mindful of the portrayals uh, in the books our kids are reading? Well, I think uh, children's literature should reflect life and all of life and all of life's experiences. And so if you have an industry that creates children's books that only portrays and reflects the life experiences of one group of people, then it's not doing what it should, in my opinion. And it's not being as great literature as it could be, because I think um, our literature is richer for the more voices and the more experiences and more um, breadth and the more diversity that we have in that. And especially when we're creating things for children, I think it's very important to try to reflect the, the experience and the breadth and the diversity of life. And uh, that sounds high, very high fluid, but I think we should give children the best that we can give them. And for me, the best means reflecting all experiences and not picking out certain groups to portray in a negative light that may then have readers themselves take on uh, that negative criticism. I think we should build up our children and not uh, tear them down. UNT assistant professor Dan Hyman agrees that children's books should be reflective of our diverse world. His work in the College of Education looks at inequities in dual language, bilingual education. He called the Dr. Seuss Enterprises decision a watershed moment for children's literature. I, I think it was a really important moment that, you know, we start to recognize that and even though you know when we think of dr seuss we think of you know i'm not it's it's not a question of disparaging those books but i do think that the you know that we need to be mindful in thinking about what images our kids are seeing in books are they images that really reflect the realities and identities of their communities or are they realities and identities that other communities are are putting onto them, and it's not their real it's not their real reality. So I think it's really important that we that they 
that they did that at the same time. And I, and I, and I think it also signals a really important watershed moment in where we're going in terms of children's literature, because it's really an exciting time to be a teacher. I mean, I know it's, 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 a, it's been a very stressful and hard year for teachers, but in terms of the content, in terms of literature, what out, what's out there, it's a great opportunity to not only expose our, our, our historically marginalized communities to books that look like them, sound like them, but at the same time expose the population from the dominant side also that there's other things besides white folks and animals right because i think you know i listen to my students the way they talk they're like i never saw myself in in, in literature when i was in elementary school right so many of them feel very like wow why didn't i get any opportunities to to, to engage with these windows and mirrors that were windows into you know experiences that I are are mirrors into like experiences that I had a, a, as a kid and in my communities too so I feel like we're on the right path I feel like I'm hearing more discussion lately about the portrayals in books do you feel like there's a growing momentum to this issue and what events uh, do you think might be pushing this conversation forward well I mean I think obviously the you know, the events that ha have happened over the last year with, with George Floyd, the, the stop Asian hate hashtag, uh, you know, the issues at the border. I think we just have these really pertinent social issues that many teachers feel it's their duty to discuss and books offer platforms to do that. Instead of teachers going and say, yeah, let's talk about uh, you know, Black Lives Matter or whatever we just say, well, let's just pull out this book called Black is a Rainbow Color and use that as a platform. So I think teachers are also realizing that I really want to engage with these topics and, and literature really opens up the space to be able to engage with that literature. So I think that is very helpful. And I also think that the growth and explosion of dual language programs too, where you have oftentimes you know, Black and Latinx communities coming into the same space with middle-class white students, that's, that's, that's a space where this kind of literature, it, it, it can offer some really great spaces for students to dialogue across race, difference, ethnicity, et cetera. So I feel like, you know, I think it's, the, I think it's our current socio-political moment, but I also feel that there are also schools like, you know, programs that are, that are right for those conversations to take place. Of course, one of the most impactful events over the last year that has affected our entire world is the coronavirus pandemic. As infection rates soared last summer and mask mandates came into effect, Dr. Hyman and his wife, Martha Sanamingo Caldron, who is an art education graduate student in UNT's College of Visual Arts and Design, found themselves faced with some difficult conversations with their own kids. So they decided to write a book. Behind My Mask, uh, the others Demi Kubler Bocas, talks about mask wearing identity and the emotions brought on by the health crisis. I think the, the impetus for the book was just um, having a tool for kids and families and communities to be able to talk about their emotions during a pandemic. 
think more than anything. And I think uh, having a space for, for, for kids to be able to talk about what they were feeling, um, what was the impetus for it. And it was also um, as a way to bring together the fields of art education and bilingual education, which are fields that usually don't communicate with each other that much. So it was to really get out some powerful images, but also a bilingual book that was targeted specifically to the Latinx community. We thought just locally, but it ended up, you know, getting a lot of, uh, you know, people really liked the book. And, and so it, 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 uh, it, it, I think it got a lot more attention than we thought nationally too. So we were really happy about the, the coverage that the book got. The couple was even able to visit a few classrooms around Texas and New York to share the book and offer a timely lesson as students were transitioning back into in-person learning. You know, we had a lot of teachers who responded to how useful they felt the book was when students came back to face-to-face -to -face schooling. They said it was just a great way for them to, before getting into any content, just really having students talk about their emotions and what they were feeling, specifically bilingual classrooms. And we did three or four visits with classrooms where we read the book and we engaged in conversation with the students. So that was really special for us that we were able to meet students and meet teachers and really um, talk in more depth about the book and how they felt about the book. So um, yeah, the reception was really great, specifically on the ground, thinking about how teachers were using it. Um, so that, 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 that was really, that was really, I think the, the best part of the feedback about the book. So as, as part of your job, um, educating the next generation of bilingual teachers, what advice do you give your students about getting children from all different backgrounds engaged in reading? I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's, I, I, it's one of the, the most important things that we talk about in terms of, you know, preparing to, to teach uh, in classrooms, right? Like the importance of grounding your, specifically literary, literacy instruction, but I'm also, I wanna, it's really by literacy instruction, really grounding your literacy instruction in authentic literature, right? And not, instead of, instead of focusing it in skills, right? Like skills are important. Like, you know, we need to be able to understand the technicalities of language, but I think we can really use books as, as again, as platforms to provide context into these more technical endeavors around language. So I really like push my students to really try to ground all of their biliteracy lessons and, and ideas around books, right? And not just, and we really, and I think what's been really interesting working with, my students are all Latinas and, you know, really also getting them to think outside of just books that are focused on the Latina community, right? Like some books that bring in the Black community because the Black community has really not been invited to participate in these dual language programs and that's problematic. And so how do we bring those communities in, the Asian community? So really also expanding their understanding of diversity, not just this sort of binary between Latinx or Spanish and English, I think has been, is, is really, really, really important too. 
And outside the classroom, Dr. Beebe has some ideas for how we can ensure children have access to a variety of reading options. I think even before we try to get books into children's hands, we need to create books that are diverse and that reflect that. And so I think one way to do that is to support publishers like Lee and Low Books, which is one of the largest multicultural children's book publishers in the US. They have two awards. One is the New Visions Award for unpublished authors of color for middle grade and young adult manuscripts. And the other is New Voices Award for a picture book manuscript by an unpublished author of color. And I think more um, publishing companies should take on uh, the orientation that Lee and Low Books um, has to uh, create as diverse um, a, a catalog as possible with, and that's starting with um, hiring and paying diverse authors and illustrators of color. So I think we need to start that. I also think we need to start reading more broadly ourselves. And you can kind of see this um, uh, kind of lifting up of authors of color in uh, the most recent Caldecott and Newberry honors from the American Library Association. And I think just um, supporting independent booksellers like bookshop.org or indiebound.org, you know, especially now when we can't get out to physical bookshops, I think is important to get those. Uh, first, we need to create those books and get those uh, books into the hands of children. And so, you know, reading people like um, Hina Khan, who is an author who wrote Under My Hijab, which is published by Lee and Lo in 2019. It was actually illustrated by Alia Jalil, who was an undergraduate student at the University of Texas at Dallas, just right down the road, um, when she created the illustrations for that book. And she's gone on to a very successful career as an illustrator. Reading people like Kyle Lukoff, uh, who's the author of When Aiden Became a Brother, um, illustrated by Keilani Juanita. It's an own voices picture book, and it celebrates the changes in a transgender boy's life from when he first comes out to when he becomes a big brother. Um, it won the 2020 uh, Stonewall Book Award from the ALA. Um, reading people like Tracy Dion, uh, who just came out with uh, Legendborn, which is a, a YA contemporary fantasy retelling of the King Arthur legend, which is just right down my alley with the medieval <laughs> um, connections. Um, but she retells King Arthur with what her publisher calls lots of Southern black girl magic. Um, her book was an instant New York Times bestseller. It won the Coretta Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent. And so I think um, if we're parents, if we're aunts or uncles or caregivers or we're teachers, I think trying to uh, make sure that we search out uh, a diversity of literature for our children to get them into their hands is, is something we should all be thinking about. In addition to being a historian, Dr. Beebe is a children's book author herself. As an English literature major in her undergraduate education, she reviewed children's books and had always dreamed of writing a book of her own one day. She said procrastination in grad school finally drove her to make it a reality. I um, was in a graduate seminar for medieval history at the University of Oxford. And uh, one of the participants who happened to be my doctoral thesis advisor, uh, Leslie Smith, she happened to remark that there was a letter in the collection of Latin letters of um, um, the, um, between Peter uh, the Venerable and the Abbot Guijo of Le Grand Chartreuse. And 
in that letter, uh, Peter the Venerable writes to the abbot to say, could we borrow your copies of the letter of St. Augustine? Because ours has been eaten by a bear. And in the Latin, it actually says comerit orsus. So that really kind of sparked my imagination. And I thought, eaten by a bear, that would make a great kid's book. And so I started playing around with the idea um, of what was the story behind that and what would happen if a bear did eat a monk's book and how would he return it? Uh, and so when I should have been writing my dissertation, I was writing a picture book and um, I sent it off uh, with uh, some good advice from my college roommate, Cheryl Klein, who um, shared my love of kids books and who is now a children's book editor. And, uh, and uh, full disclosure is an editorial director at Lee and Lowe Books. <laughs> and um, she suggested that a publishing house called um, uh, Erdman's Books for Young Readers would be very interested because they published similar sorts of things. So I sent it out and lo and behold, they were interested. And so they, they signed me up uh, to pl publish Brother Hugo and the Bear and that came out in 2014. Dr. Beebe's work in children's literature didn't stop there. She felt like she had more stories to share. Her second book, Nile Crossing, started out as a Christmas present for her mom. My mom was uh, an amateur Egyptologist. She was interested in Egypt. And as a kid, uh, we would go on long car trips and she would read books to us about the history of ancient Egypt. And so for Christmas one year, I wrote her a story about a boy's first day of school in ancient Egypt, just as a present. And I didn't illustrate it. Um, but then I thought, you know what? Maybe this would be uh, uh, something that could become a book too. And so I ran it by my editor at Erdman's and she agreed. And so it became Nile Crossing. Um, illustrated by Sally Warren Comport. And then, you know, ideas for, for writers come from anywhere. So on my honeymoon with my husband in Cornwall, we were taking an overnight train from London to Penzance on the Cornish coast. Uh, I was really intrigued by the people who worked on the overnight train. And I thought, what about a dad who works on the train as a conductor overnight, but he has a family in the Cornish coast and a little seaside cottage. And so um, that uh, became the story called Good Morning Harry, Good Night Daddy, where Harry's getting ready to go to bed and sleeps through the night and daddy is just going to work and he's working through the night and they meet in the morning when it's uh, morning for Harry and night for daddy. And do you have any new projects you're working on? Um, the newest book that I have is uh, called Thunder Trucks and it's uh, written uh, with my friend Cheryl Klein. Um, we uh, uh, wanted to do something really fun together. And she's kind of the structure person and I'm uh, the color and the, the, the commentary person. And uh, she was visiting me to uh, meet her godson, who is my, my son. And a big Texas thunderstorm came up and he got very, very scared. And I said, oh yeah, um, my grandma used to tell me, uh, don't worry because those are just angels bowling in heaven. And uh, she knew that he liked trucks at the time. And she said, don't worry, those are just big trucks rolling around making thunder ahead. And we looked at each other and we said, aha, that is a picture book right there. And so uh, the rest of the summer, we uh, just went our separate ways. And I tried to work on the, the text and I was coming up with all these great lines, but had no story really. And 
I came to visit her at the end of the summer in New York City, and she admitted she'd been working on this story too, and she had a great story, but her lines were not what she wanted. And so we said, why not do this together? So uh, when I went back on our cross-country drive to Texas, I was in uh, our car, um, and she'd given me the structure for the story, and I was making up lines for the story, and it was really a, a really fun collaboration, and that became Thunder Trucks. Um, how a group of friendly trucks, a team, actually go, come together to create a thunderstorm. And it's illustrated by Mike Bolt and uh, published by Disney Hyperion. Um, my new picture books, <laughs> when I'm not grading student papers and working on my academic publications, I, again, this is a great uh, area and perhaps uh, too tempting for procrastination. Um, I'm working on a rhymed picture book about the Dominican friar pilgrim I mentioned earlier called The Pilgrimage of Friar Felix about his trip to Jerusalem and how at first he all he can do is he wants to get away from the monks he's living with. Well, they're friars really. And his brothers, he can't stand being with his brothers and he just wants to get away. But when he gets away, he realizes he misses them. And so it's a kind of a book about home, away and home again. And I'm struggling with the current manuscript um, based on uh, kind of the birth of my new daughter um, called The Very Noisy Babies. <laughs> and uh, when she was born, we had a very noisy baby bird in our backyard and she and the bird would be very noisy at the same time. So uh, it's still in quite in the formation uh, stage right now, as, as is she. So. <laughs> Yeah, and as, as you mentioned, a lot of these children's books you've written have or, or draw on your historical research. Mm -hmm. uh, why did you feel it was important to tell these historical stories to a younger audience? It's funny because I didn't approach it that way. Um, I approach it from the um, kind of the aspect of interest in story. And so, you know, there's this old writing uh, advice chestnut of write what you know. And I think that's what I was doing without realizing it that um, I was interested in the story first, in the story of what was going on with this poor monk who had his book eaten by a bear, or um, what would it be like um, if you lived in ancient Egypt and uh, were maybe a bit nervous about starting school, but your school was a boat ride across the Nile away. And um, so I didn't start out to think I'm going to write a historical book for kids. I started more from the perspective, this is such a cool story. I want to explore this more. And do you see areas of uh, growth for historical children's literature? Um, maybe what uh, areas of history um, aren't really being covered by books on the market today? I think, I think there is a wide breadth of history um, being covered. Um, but I think, of course, there's always room for more. And I think part of that um, links back to our discussion about uh, the need for diverse books. And I think. Uh, telling stories from the perspective of people who haven't had their stories told before. Um, telling stories uh, about uh, people who may even lie outside of kind of mainstream ideas of what we need diverse books about. So people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who is uh, early, uh, a, a child and a teenager um, in uh, the labor movement and the anarchist movement uh, for greater freedoms and from, uh, and she was called Rebel Girl because she was up and giving uh, speeches even at the age of 13, uh, 
so that workers can have better rights and uh, workers can have better uh, living conditions. And I think I haven't seen a lot of books from, from perspectives like hers. And so I'd, I'd like to see more of that. And what inspires you to continue writing for children? I love stories and I love reading stories and, and hearing that other people have read uh, stories and enjoyed them. Uh, sometimes they don't. And I think um, I love creating things with other people too. And um, so I think it's entertaining for me, but I hope it's also entertaining and maybe a bit educational for other people. And I think that that keeps me going. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. To view a list of book recommendations from our UNT professors, please see our show notes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe.